I've titled this message, The True Nature of Christian Ministry. The True Nature of Christian Ministry. And I've divided it into two points. So if you're looking for a third point, um, that will have to wait for another sermon. So if you get two, you've got them. The True Nature of Christian Ministry. Now, it is bound up in the title that there is something presented as Christian ministry which is not truly Christian and not truly Christian ministry. So there is such thing as a false Christian ministry. And that is the subject of today's message, and it is the main point of point number one. So that brings us to our first point, point one, verses one through five, the true nature of Christian ministry. Yes, my point is the title. Point one, the true nature of Christian ministry. Verse one, and I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and fear and in much trembling, and my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Under this first point, we have some subpoints, and this, these are as follows. Number one, not of our origin, power, or methods. Not of our origin, power, or methods. The true nature of Christian ministry is not of our origin. True Christian ministry does not come from us. You see this described by Paul in this first paragraph. He says, it is not my speech. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with excellent speech. Paul's Christian ministry, which is a model for us all to see, to look at, to understand how he thinks and how he conducts himself. His ministry is not with powerful speech. It is not with word traps. He's not playing word games. He is not doing trickery. The true nature of Christian ministry, not coming from our own selves, our origin, our power or methods, first, is not in our speech. Secondly, it is not in Paul's wisdom. True Christian ministry doesn't come from wisdom which originates in our minds. It does not come from us. It does not come from human philosophy. Thirdly, it is not Paul's persuasiveness. True Christian ministry does not come from arm twisting. It does not come from manipulation. It does not come from high pressure situations. Paul says, my words were not with persuasive words of human wisdom. Look in verse four. My speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom. He did aim to persuade Remember when he was in Caesarea Philippi speaking to Pontius Pilate, I think? And he says, in the King James, he says, almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. You have almost persuaded me to be a Christian. But Paul's persuasion was not the type of tactic that you would experience if you are with a really good salesman. Have you ever encountered someone who is part of an MLM? So for those who don't know what an MLM is, that is multi-level marketing. 
or what do they call it, like network sales or something like that. And basically, you're supposed to just like emotionally abuse all of your friends into giving you money. Um, so if let's say I sign on with some salesman who says, I'm going to sell you the opportunity to sell the opportunity to sell the opportunity to sell the opportunity to sell vacation packages to people. And so if you give me $5,000 and then you give me $200 in perpetuity, then you can have the opportunity to sell other people for $5,000 as an entry fee for $200 a month in perpetuity, the opportunity to sell someone else for $5,000 for $200 a month in perpetuity, the opportunity to buy these discounted vacation packages. And you're like, yeah, I can't afford that. And they're like, but look, it pays for itself. By the end of the first quarter, you will have made all this money. Then they pull out the charts. They start showing you that all you have to do is get, well, you get one person to sign on and then that pays for your entry fee. And then you get a second person to sign on and then you're 100% ahead of where you were and so on. And so they present these financial figures and then you raise another objection. And you say, well, I don't have time to go on vacation. And then they say, well, you would have time to go on vacation if you didn't have to work as much, and you wouldn't have to work as much if you quit your job and you went into doing this full-time, and then you would only have to work four hours a week. And then your next response, your next objection might be something like, well, I don't want to go on vacation by myself. And they say, well, that's why you sell all your friends on this. And then you say... I already have my vacations planned for the next five years. And they say, but where would you go if you could? So they're trying to get you to, to dream. And then they, then they praise you and affirm you and, and say, you know, I, they start the whole meeting by affirming you, saying, I love your outfit. And they're trying to get you started on the right foot. So they're trying to pressure you and manipulate you and get you to say yes. True Christian ministry is not like that. It is not a, hey, I'm going to meet with you for coffee and you're not leaving this table until you get saved. That's, that's, not, that, that's a cult tactic. <laughs> Christian ministry is not like that. Uh, I once worked with a, uh, I was once part of a church with a, a fellow who had a thing that he called Code Green, which I haven't really watched The Incredible Hulk, but from what I understand, Code Green is something where like, the Hulk changes from being a person to being the Hulk, and then he like smashes the tables and stuff. And it's this like, yeah, it's like pushing the bat signal or something. It's like this is our 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 powerful move that we're gonna do to win, basically. And so for him, Code Green was a fail-proof, foolproof argument of a logical syllogism by which he would meet with a pr- visitor of the church. You know, you come once or twice and then he's like, hey, can we meet up for coffee? They say yes. And then he's like, hey, you should come back. And they're like, well, you know, I'm still, still, you know, checking out my options. He's like, oh, but there are no other options. And then begins this sequence where it's airtight logic if you assume all of the foundational uh, propositions. And so what effectively leads to is people are boxed into a corner where they have to come. They have to be a part of this. Otherwise, they're not even a Christian. That is not the true nature of Christian ministry. 
We should not be pressuring people and twisting their arms using guilt tactics. Tell them, hey, you're going to go to hell unless you come to this church. Paul did not do that. His ministry to the Corinthian Christians was not with arm twisting, not with manipulation, not with emotional abuse, psychological pressure. That's not the way the Christian ministry is designed. Not through fake tears either. And then fourthly, the true nature of Christian ministry is not in strength. Not in strength. I've mentioned this previously, but there are two separate distinct theologies that are often pointed back to uh, from, from Martin Luther. There's a theology of glory and a theology of the cross. Theology of glory is an up and to the right theology where you just get better and better. Everything gets better and better. Uh, power grows and influence grows and control grows and wealth grows and, and, and just everything is, uh, is up and to the right and amazing and, and, and stronger. And frankly, that is a, a large part of, of where um, Roman Catholic theology and practice comes from. Where, hey, yeah, we control the states, of the religions of this world, the, the governments of this world. We, can, we control them. We can make phone calls to the kings and princes of this world and tell them what to do. And because I am the Pope, I have this power. Our wealth, look at the, the growth of our wealth over the last two millennia. That sort of thing. In contrast to that, though, is, is a theology of the cross. Theology of the cross is the polar opposite of this theology of glory. And it is actually Christian theology, whereas theology of glory is not Christian. A theology of the cross is bound up in the person and work of Jesus Christ, who doesn't win by conquering with a sword, who doesn't win by political pressure. He wins through dying on the cross. And Paul models his ministry after this fact. He says that I was with you in weakness. He didn't come in to Corinth with a show of strength. He didn't come into Corinth as this impressive figure. A lot of people believe Paul was fairly short and ugly and old and bald. He didn't look good. He's not like King Saul in the Old Testament, who is a good foot taller than the next, the average person. People like to follow tall leaders, physically tall leaders. It's just part of our way that we're wired. But Paul's ministry is not based on those things. It's not based on the, the human physique. It's not based on physical strength. But beyond that, it is not based on emotional strength or verbal impressive Strength. Paul says, I was with you in weakness, in fear. He allowed the Corinthian believers, or the, the new believers, the ones who are converted, he allowed them to see the inner workings of his heart. That yes, in Christian ministry, even your leaders have fear. They have fear, they have concerns, they have burdens that are on their heart. 
And let me just speak to you for a moment in, in a more direct way, and that is that if you have the idea that your faith will be weakened or wavered by knowing that your pastor has fear, you are confused. You have the wrong system in mind about how things ought to be. Christ is our sufficiency and Christ is our strength. And my job as a pastor or whoever is speaking, whoever is preaching, their job is to point to Jesus and his strength and his mightiness and his impressive stability. But his might is not through big muscles and big bank accounts. His might is through his covenant-keeping love his faithfulness, his death on the cross, his resurrection, and his ascension at the right hand of the Father today. And so that is the source of our strength. And our our strength is, is unwavering regardless of human circumstances, regardless of what is happening in the news this week, in our city, in our economy, in our culture. Jesus is our strength. It is not Paul. It is not Andy. It is not your pastor. It is not your favorite celebrity preacher. They are not your strength. The foundation of your faith is not based on whether or not they or I get everything perfectly right. Because there was only one perfect man and that was Jesus. So the Apostle Paul has no problem allowing the Corinthian believers to know about his weakness and to know about his fear and to even know about his trembling. Those who like to look through um, psychological lenses at Scripture would look at people like the Apostle Paul or people like David and say, well, they have emotional problems because they're like crying a lot or they're they get sad and they get discouraged and they're open about that and they're telling the, their Corinthian believers or writing in their journal about their tears. Now, the true nature of Christian ministry does not come from our own strength, our own power, or our own methods. It does not originate in us, not in our speech, our wisdom, our persuasion, or our strength. But what is it? The true nature of Christian ministry views Christ as the source. Christ is the origin. Christ is the fount where all this comes from. It doesn't flow from the fount of the Apostle Paul's imagination or ingenuity, not from Andy's speaking ability or anything like that, but rather it flows from Christ. Christ is the source. Second, Christ is the means. And thirdly, Christ is the end or the object of Christian ministry. When verse 2 says, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, Paul was not joking and he was not exaggerating. You might say, well, how does that work? Because I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. There's a lot of things besides Christ and him crucified in this book. There's a lot of things besides Christ and him crucified in this 1 Corinthians. How does that work? Well, ultimately it looks like this. The preacher would say, I have one message 
And I'll preach it a dozen ways from a thousand texts. But it will be that same message. It will be the message of Christ and his person and his work. A great historical example of this would be Martin Lloyd-Jones, or Dr. David Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was a medical doctor who turned into a preacher in England in the last century. He was born in 1899 and died in 1981, and he was was on the track to be the official doctor of the Queen of England. He was quite successful, quite good, quite brilliant at a very young age, and he was personally trained by the official doctor of the King and Queen of England. But he gets saved and senses this call to ministry and ends up walking away from the medical profession. And on his gravestone is written this verse, I determined to know nothing among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And if you listen to his preaching, you will hear that. As he has, you know, 50 or 100 sermons on the book of Romans and, you know, 50 or 100 sermons on the book of Ephesians and Isaiah and all these books of the Bible. But what is the point of all of those messages? It is Christ. There is one message, one story to be told. In Christian music, there are three ways of describing a, a, a song, and it is effectively a psalm, hymn, or spiritual song. So psalms are psalms from the Bible. Hymns are hymns like when I survey the wondrous cross. It has a certain style to it, a certain uh, structure. And then there are spiritual songs. And spiritual songs are these testimonial songs. Uh, they call them gospel songs. Um, they were very popular about 150 years ago in this, this era of um, evangelistic campaigns and, and revival meetings. And so these gospel songs, you would have a soloist who would sing right before the preacher would come up, and that soloist would sing often a gospel song, which is a song of testimony. A hymn would be a song of confession. We as the people, as the congregation, are affirming a certain set of doctrine, but this spiritual, this gospel song is a personal testimony. And one of, the, one of them that I'm reminded of is this song, Tell Me the Old, Old Story. Tell me the old, old story of unseen things above, of Jesus and his glory, of Jesus and his love. Tell me the story simply as to a little child. For I am weak and weary and helpless and defiled. Verse 2 says, Tell me the story slowly, that I may take it in. That wonderful redemption, God's remedy for sin. Tell me the story often, for I forget so soon. The early dew of morning has passed away at noon. Tell me the same old story when you have cause to fear that this world's empty glory is costing me too dear. Tell me the story always, if if you would really be in any time of trouble, a comforter to me. And then the chorus just goes, tell me the old, old story. Tell me the old, old story. Tell me the old, old story of Jesus and his love. The Christian church used to sing songs like that all the time. And the reminder is that this message of the gospel is not something new. It is not something that changes or evolves. We, don't, we, we, we categorically reject concepts like narrative theology. 
where the theology of the Bible is just sort of evolving. And so God is telling a new story today in 2023 than what he was telling in 2005 or 1995. That God has something fresh and, and, and new for the church that he didn't have in 1950 or 1850 or 1750. No, we are practicing the same religion that Jesus and the apostles taught and preached and practiced and has been handed down and preserved since then. And at its core, at its, at its most basic level, this is this one message, the message of Christ. And this message at its core is that salvation comes only through Jesus Christ. And in our text today, what he's speaking of is not only that salvation comes through Jesus Christ, but sanctification comes as well through the power and grace that is in Christ Jesus. Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. He who began a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ, Philippians 1.6. Note that that verse says, he, emphasis on he who began a good work, will perform it. He will perform it. So who saved you? Our triune God saved you. Who will sanctify you? That same God who saved you will sanctify you. The source of our ministry is Christ. Think of a power source. Think of a power outlet. You've got a socket in the wall. We're not going to get into what's behind the power outlet and and that sort of thing because that's way too complicated for right now. But let's just say, for the sake of simplicity, that that power comes from the power outlet, and that's the source. Secondly, there is the means. Think of a power cable that is plugged into the power outlet. The means of getting the power from the outlet to the device is the cable, the cord. And then there is the goal or the end or the completion. So think of the vacuum cleaner that probably half of you have used here in the church. Vacuuming after service. So you have that power cord plugged into the wall, the source, the means, the end is that you would have a functioning vacuum cleaner, that you have a functioning hairdryer. So for this simple illustration to represent Jesus, Jesus is our power source. Jesus is the means of our ministry, and Jesus is the end or the goal of our ministry. Remember, the point of the sermon is the true nature of Christian ministry. It is not in Paul's strength. It is not, not in his wisdom or his speech or his, his power or impressive anything. No, it is all about Christ, and Jesus is the power source. Remember verses like, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Remember, well, secondly, Jesus is the power source, and secondly, Jesus is the means of our ministry. We preach Christ. That's the way this is being accomplished. And thirdly, Jesus is the end or the goal of our ministry, the aim of why we're doing this, what this is all about. I'll remind you of Revelation 5. And I looked and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. 
Now, when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and you have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders. The number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. Then the four living creatures said, amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshiped him who lives forever and ever. What you see in that chapter, in that text, is that the, the cross of Christ, which is bound up in the point of 1 Corinthians 1, 2, 3, 4, etc., that the cross of Christ has a direct connection to the worship of Christ. So in eternity, in the age to come, or in heaven, in the present reality, the, the, the reality is that, that these people, these beings, are worshiping Jesus because He's the one who was slain because he died on the cross, because he accomplished our redemption. So the object or the purpose or the end of this whole thing is the glory of Jesus. So that should, that should be an anchor for us that keeps us tied to the ground. It keeps us from bouncing around too much. Because it reminds us, well, this whole thing should be an anchor that ties us down, that Jesus is our power source. He is the one that we get our strength from. He is the means of accomplishing the ministry that we are attempting. And he is the end or the goal of our ministry. I remind you of the mission statement or the, the purpose of PBC. PBC exists to make disciples of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit to the glory of God, the Father. We also see in John 17 that when Jesus receives glory, he re reflects and deflects that glory to the Father. Now, the implications for this truth are profound. There are many implications or consequences of this truth, and we have just a few of these described here. You must be aware, you must know that the training of Christian ministers is filled with books. And when I say books, I mean literal books, like, like this, but not the Bible, just books. Now, for the 14 or so of us that were at the conference this week, there was a bookstore. That bookstore is curated or, or filtered to a large degree. If you were to go to a regular Christian bookstore, so think of uh, Christian book distributors or Lifeway or Amazon, you're going to find a much wider range of books. The training of Christian ministers is filled with book peddlers. These books are of all types. 
If you can think of it, they've got it. Imagine with me a book that that teaches you that you should integrate Christianity and non-Christian religions together in order to more effectively uh, reach people. They have those kind of books. How to merge Christianity and the Enneagram. They have that. Anything you can imagine. There are people writing Christian books and trying to sell them in order to make money. The training of Christian ministers is also filled with church growth trends. We do survey after survey after survey after survey after survey. Every year we're putting out four new surveys in order to find out what's happening in America, what works and what the successful patterns and pathways are in order to have a large growing church. There are magazines dedicated to this. Think of Outreach Magazine. You can see the 100 fastest growing churches in America. You can read interviews from their pastors to find out what tricks they did and what ways they found are effective to reach people. In addition to this, the training of Christian ministers is filled with marketing gimmicks. Here in New York City, there are churches that um, pre-COVID, they would give you a first-time visitor a free movie ticket. They rented like half sheet ads in these newspapers, like, I don't know, New York Post or something, like big papers, full, full size ads that said, you know, come to our Easter service. All first time visitors will receive a free movie ticket. Like AMC, you know, you just go to the movies and watch any movie you want. There is a very popular expression. I've mentioned it multiple times, but we'll do it again because it's relevant here. And that is the word contextualization. You know, if you're going to have a church that truly ministers to people and reaches people, you've you got to contextualize. See Paul in Acts chapter 17? See the way he quoted the Athenian philosophers? And, and you need to do that too. You need 16 quotes from the New York Times per sermon in order to reach New Yorkers. You need to have a series of sermons on finding Christ in the movies. You need an introductory movie clip from the most recent major film that has swept the nation. You've got to play those video clips in the middle of your sermon. I'm talking like regular mainstream movies here. You have to adopt the language patterns of our day, even give little hat tips to their gods, such as offering incense to the goddess of feminism by phrasing your sentences in ways like this. Hello, women and men, instead of men and women. You know, like normal English grammar says men and women, but we have to rephrase that to women and men because the women will be insecure and offended if you say men and women first. It's the little things, you know. You have to practice pronoun hospitality by putting your she, her pronouns in your bio on social media because that supports the idea that there are more than two genders. And that your gender is not necessarily what you're born with, and that your gender is, uh, should not necessarily be what you look like. I'm here to tell you no, that's utter nonsense. And to participate in that is capitulation to the gods of this world. And by gods of this world, I mean demons of this world. But praise God, this last example is one of the easiest things to repent from. And unlike other sins, it is not something that you have to keep repenting from due to repeat offenses. It's a very simple one and done activity to rid your social media of any hint of worship of the LGBT plus agenda and its demonic false gods. 
There are plenty of people in this church who used to have those things in their bios. And then they repented and said, you know what, I should not have those symbols, those hat tips to the gods of this world in my social media because that is acknowledging demons which should not be affirmed and acknowledged. Sadly, there are churches whose pastors advocate for this pronoun hospitality in order to make people feel more comfortable in their present lost condition. This is very bad. I'll keep it simple here. I was thinking of other things to say, but it is bad, not good. This is a tragedy. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. He did not come to coddle and encourage them in their present condition. Jesus did not come by empathizing with their rebellion against his law and the light of nature, which reflects his character. But in fact, when Jesus came, sometimes he spoke gently, depending on his audience, but sometimes it was less gentle in his confrontation. He said things like, except you repent, you will all likewise perish. Then, my friends, that's not very nice. It's not very gentle. It's very direct. So in addition to these things, we have contextualization, which actually a biblical view of contextualization is that Jesus or the Apostle Paul used common examples that the people were familiar with in order to correct and to confront their audience instead of to make their audience feel comfortable in order to capitulate to them, in order to appease them. No, they, they, they didn't change their language in order to affirm the people. Rather, they changed their language in order to clearly communicate. So yeah, Jesus was contextualizing when he says, consider the lilies of the field. He was using common, familiar expressions, but he wasn't, he wasn't pulling these things out in order to affirm people in their sin. So the modern practice of contextualization that you would hear and read about in church growth and church ministry books is actually the opposite of what Jesus and the apostles did. In the Christian ministry today, the name of the game is pragmatism, which means if it works, do it. Look, I know this might not be right, but it works. It just brings people in. There are pastors who pastor very large churches who will, in pastors' meetings, where they're training pastors, they will correct and contradict the very practices that their church is practicing. They'll stand up in front of these, this room full of pastors and say, you know, these things that we're doing, they're creating nominal false converts. And so we need to focus instead on the preaching of the word and, and discipleship. Clear gospel proclamation. And then they'll go back to their churches and ignore everything they just said in those seminars. Because they can bring people in more effectively, more quickly, more clearly by these tricks, by these pragmatic efforts. There's much deception and lying in the Christian ministry today. 
Pragmatic pastors are always looking for a new trick or a new tactic, a new thing to draw people in. Why? Well, because at the end of the day, they believe that the church is tired and the traditional religion is worn out. And we need to reach the youth. So what can we do to draw the young people in? If I had a dollar for every time a pastor asked me, Andy, how do you reach so many young people? Not that we are like by any means some kind of like insanely large church. But by our type of church standards, this is kind of large for here. So if I had a dollar for every time a pastor asked me, Andy, what's your trick? What's your secret to to reaching the youth? I would have more than one dollar. I will say it's not all bad. It's not all bad that these pastors are asking these questions. I do think that their hearts are in the right place. They want to reach people, or at least many of them want to reach people for right and good reasons. Remember that hymn that we haven't sung lately and we should sing it again soon. How sweet and awful, or how sweet and awesome. Awful just means awesome, like full of awe. How sweet and awful is the place with Christ within the veil. One of the verses of that song says, We long to see your churches full, that all the chosen race may with one heart and mind and soul sing thy redeeming grace. It is good to desire to see the churches full. We sing that song here sometimes. It's been ages, but we do sing it. But here's the kicker. Here's the the irony. We have been given the answer to the question. God has given us the answer to the question of how do you reach so many young people or how do you reach New Yorkers or how do you reach skeptics or whatever the, the, the type of person is or minorities. Because today, that is the altar that white evangelical pastors bow to. How do you have a diverse church? It's not just upper class whites and Asians. What's the way to do it? Well, we've been given the answer, and the answer is in some of the most simple, most clear, most popular verses in the entire Bible, such as Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. So my friends, what this verse says when it says to the Jew and also to the Gentile, it means to every type of person in the entire world, and that includes young people or old people or rich people or poor people or black people or white people or Hispanics or Asians or any type of person. The gospel is the power of God for them, for their salvation. And speaking to pastors online, I'll look at the camera. If you're a pastor, you know that verse already. And if you don't, you should retire and resign today. I will also say now to you, young people, if you are a young person in this room, or you consider yourself a young person, Or perhaps you are a teenager or even a child. Hear this message today. And that message is that the gospel, the message of Jesus Christ, which we preach here every week, 
is the only way for you to be saved. And what we mean by saved is, so you're a sinner, God is holy, God is without sin. So your sin, your bad things that you do, and you see other people do them to you, and you don't like it when they do them, the solution to that bad, that evil, that sin, is Jesus himself. Not your being good, because you're not, but Jesus being good in your place, taking your place as what we call a substitute. So if you've ever been to a grocery store and you're with a friend or you're at a restaurant with a friend and you're pulling your card out to pay and a friend says, no, let me pay, they have taken your place. They substituted for you. They paid your bill. They paid your debt. That is what Jesus has done for us. He paid for our sins. So all you have to do to receive that payment is to believe on him. To say, yes, Jesus, I'll take it. But what happens is oftentimes we're very proud. And that pride can even affect us as young people, as children or teenagers. We think, no, because if he pays, then that means he can control things. So we say, no, I'll pay for myself. So we give Jesus the stiff arm. We reject him because we want to do things our way. This message of Christ, the gospel of Christ, is available for all people, young and old. In addition to Romans 1.16, I would also remind you of John 12.32, which says, Jesus said, it, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. This he said, signifying what death he would die. You know what death he died, right? He was lifted up off the earth on a pole, on a cross. He was crucified. He's saying, if I am crucified, I will draw all men to myself, men and women, people. I will draw all people to myself. And this statement that if I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself applies just as much to his action of dying as preaching his action of dying. If you are preaching the lifting up of Christ, that is the way that Jesus draws people to himself. So what is the secret or the true nature of Christian ministry? The true nature of Christian ministry is Christ himself. He is the power source. He is the means. He is the end. It all revolves around him. Now this brings us into, oh wow, we're, it's 11.48, point two. I'm very sorry. Verse 6 through 16, this is the larger section. Verse 6 through 16, point two, the open secret of Christian ministry. So we have the true nature of Christian ministry. Secondly, the open secret of Christian ministry. I will try to read this quickly. 1 Corinthians 2, 6 through 16 says, however, we speak wisdom among those who are mature. Yet not the wisdom of this age, not, nor of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery. Mystery, that's where I get the word secret. 
The mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew. For had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, eye has not seen nor ear heard, nor entered into the heart of man, the things that God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us through his spirit. For the spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man, which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of this world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can they know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. The one thing I want to you to see that helps unlock this section is that verses one through five, Paul is speaking in the first person singular. I, this, I, that. Describing his view of ministry. But verse six through 16, there's a shift. You see what it is? However, we speak wisdom. The last verse, 16. Who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. We see this shifting from singular to plural throughout this point two, verse six through 16. So when I say my second point is the open secret of Christian ministry, sure, it's a secret. Sure, it's a mystery, but it's an open secret. It's a thing that a lot of people know. Paul is not the only one who preaches this message. He's with a company of other believers and other preachers and apostles and prophets, and there's a long history here of lots of people who are preaching this secret. Yes, Paul's Paul's message contains mysteries, but these messages or these secrets are different from the secrets of a secret society. You see, with these secrets, your life will not be threatened by knowing or revealing them, but rather through the open proclamation of these mysteries, that's how you get life. Your life is not threatened. Your life is actually given to you. It is received. It is granted. That is the way in which you have life. Now, the reality is these mysteries were genuinely hidden. The mysteries of God, they were truly hidden. But not very well. Think of all of the breadcrumbs that have been placed from the beginning of time up to Good Friday, April 3rd, A.D. 33 which we're coming up on. These prophecies have been made publicly. The seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, Genesis 3.15. That's been written down for a very, very long time. 
The seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent would be born in Bethlehem. That's also a promise and prophecy that is made publicly. He would be born of a virgin, also promised publicly. He would be of the house of David. He would be of the tribe of Judah. He would be called a Nazarene. He would be a suffering servant. He would enter Jerusalem on a donkey. He would live and die without ever having his bones broken. He would perform miracles. He would heal the sick. He would come preaching. He would be silent before his accusers. In his death, his hands and feet would be pierced. He would drink vinegar. He would die on a cross. Soldiers would gamble for his robes, yet not cut them or break them. They would gamble on it as is. He would be buried with the rich. He would rise again on the third day. This is the secret. This is the mystery. And it is the worst kept secret of all time. It is the most widely known mystery in history. Yet it was nevertheless a mystery. It was truly a mystery. And it was hidden in such a way, hidden in plain sight, so much so that in Satan's rage against Jesus, Satan himself entered into Judas and drove Judas to betray Jesus in his final act, which would be yet another decisive measure which would directly lead to Jesus' crucifixion, which is now the central point in all of human history. Jesus literally divided time in two. Like years, you know? What is this? 2023. Well, what happened 2023 years ago? Well, time went the other way. Why? Because this guy named Jesus came. And they can try to change it and say, we're not going to use AD anymore. We're not going to use BC anymore before Christ and, you know, the year of our Lord, Anno Domini or whatever. So we'll change it to BCE. Well, what, what's the number associated with BCE? Well, right now it's still 2023, which means 2023 years ago, time was different. Jesus is the central point of human history. These prophecies about Jesus had been proclaimed publicly. They'd been written down. They've been copied. They've been preserved. We can see through manuscript evidence that what the prophets gave has been accurately preserved. And we hold an accurate translation of all of those books in our hands today. If you don't believe me, you can investigate it for yourself. The manuscript evidence is crystal clear. It is a field dominated by skeptics and unbelievers, but what they affirm is the Bible has been preserved. These prophecies are proclaimed, written down, memorized, and taught from generation to generation for thousands of years, yet Satan and his demonic rulers still did not know that their actions were driving the nails in their own coffin by driving the nails in Jesus. They thought, hey, we're going to win. Even though Isaiah 53 said he was pierced and he was afflicted, by his stripes we are healed. They could see it in plain sight, but they didn't see it. This is an open secret. It is an open mystery. So they inspire the crowd to cheer, crucify, crucify, not realizing that this action is the linchpin that would seal their fate and secure their doom. 
This is the way through Jesus' substitutionary death that God has made a way to maintain his righteousness while justly or righteously punishing our sin, yet also forgiving us. How can he forgive us while maintaining his justice? Well, it's by killing his son in our place. Well, how is his son going to get killed? Well, the crowd cries out, crucify him. How did he get into that position? Well, Judas sold him to Pilate for 30 pieces of silver, which was the price of a slave. You see, without Christ and without him crucified, nobody is going to make it out of this death trap that we call human life. And this whole thing I've spent the last couple minutes talking about, that is the mystery. And that's the mystery that is only revealed by the Holy Spirit, even though it's written in black and white in your hands. Because you can read it and you don't get it until you do get it. And what makes the lights turn on is the Holy Spirit. Not my arm twisting, not my tactics, not my persuasion, not my speech, not even my nice jacket that I have with these elbow patches. Do you remember that great reform doctrine, which some people call radical inability? Radical inability, some people might call it total depravity. What does that mean? Well, Jesus very clearly and simply stated this for us in John chapter 6. He says that no man can come to me except the Father draws him. Paul says in Ephesians 2, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. That is your natural condition. You're not seeking after him. You're dead. But you need to be awakened. You need to be raised from the dead. And the way that happens is through the proclamation of the gospel. That's how and why it's a big deal that the gospel is the power of God into salvation, not a power of God into salvation and not, uh, you know, a, a six-step program. No, it is the power of God and it raises the dead. Now, it is 11.59. Verse 6 through 9 says, Speak wisdom among those who are mature. However, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages. God ordained this whole plan, the mystery of God, the gospel. He ordained that before time began. He, he planned it. And he planned it for our glory, you know, for our glorification that we would someday be with him. Verse 8 says, none of the rulers of this age knew it. Rather they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Rulers of this age can describe either human rulers, such as Pontius Pilate, also, rulers of this age is, is, is a very spiritual expression often used to describe demons. If Satan knew that this was the plan, he would not have called for that play. He would have said, actually, no, let's not have him crucified. This is why Jesus spoke so sharply to Peter and called Peter Satan when Peter tried to stop Jesus from being crucified. Peter pulls out his sword and says, no, they'll never kill you. And he says, get behind me, Satan. 
But on a human level, these human leaders who called for Jesus' crucifixion, they would not have crucified him if they would have known. For it is written, eye has not seen, nor has ear heard, nor has entered in the heart of man, the things which God has prepared for those who love him. Verse 10, God has revealed them to us through his spirit. For the spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. Speaking of wisdom among those who are mature or the deep things of God, you teach more advanced things to those who are more advanced. Think of fitness or athletics or martial arts or education or math or math and finance or the arts and entertainment, anything else. You don't start with those beginners on day one, you don't work with five-year-olds teaching them English. When you're teaching them English, you, you start with the alphabet. You don't start with subject-verb agreement. You don't start with parsing or sentence diagramming. You start with basic stuff for them. In baseball or t-ball or little league, you're starting them as a three, four, five-year-old with a T, not facing 90-mile-an-hour pitching or knee-buckling curveballs. So you speak wisdom among those who are mature. Not worldly wisdom, but the wisdom of God. This is the wisdom that was hidden. And that is the wisdom that is summed up in the cross. That's the wisdom that is hidden from you before salvation. It's in plain sight. But the number of people that go around seeking for fulfillment, for salvation, for a way to satisfy their guilty conscience, not recognizing that it is Christ. Why? Well, because it's hidden from them. Their eyes are blinded. One commentator says, the only wisdom Paul preaches is the wisdom of the cross, not more sophisticated instruction for a select group. It is the same wisdom for beginners and more advanced Christians. The measure of this wisdom is one's grasp of the deep things of God embodied in the cross that manifests itself in a changed behavior. So you see that in certain behavior that then chapter 3 is going to talk about. So those who are mature are not the people who are doing the things described in chapter 3. See 1 Corinthians 3, 1 and 2. Paul refers to the Corinthians as infants in Christ. This is clearly set in contrast to being mature in Christ. So what is the mark of this immaturity? Well, you see that in chapter 3 with a factious or divisive conduct. So we've come to the end of our time, we've come to the end of our text, and I'm frankly not sure how to end this, so we have the true nature of Christian ministry, and we have the secret, the open secret of Christian ministry. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us, that we would not allow our faith to rest in the wisdom of men, but that our confidence would rest in the power of God, knowing that you're the one who raised the dead. You're the one who sustained us. You are our life and our hope. And you, the, the preaching of Christ, the preaching of this plan of redemption and the gospel is our A to Z. It is the whole of the Christian life summed up 
in one message. We pray that you would help us, that you would shape our thinking, that you would change our way of thinking to align with this message taught in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We thank you for Christ and for Christ crucified, who is our life. We pray these things now in his name, amen.